Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Be to God. We will read the Psalm responsibly by whole verse. Psalm 89 verses one through nine. My song shall be always at the loving kindness of the Lord. With my mouth will I ever be proclaiming your faithfulness from one generation to another. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. O Lord, the heavens will praise your wondrous works and your faithfulness in the assembly of the saints. God is greatly to be feared in the council of the saints and to be held in reverence by all who are round about him. You rule the raging of the sea. You still the waves when they arise. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 through 48. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. So the gospel, um, the gospel reading today was originally the second half of Luke chapter three, but since we've cut all the songs and the service, service is going to be much shorter, I'm actually gonna read the entirety of Luke chapter three as our gospel reading today. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch over Galilee and his brother Philip, the tetrarch over the region of Eturia and Trachonitis and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Anna of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. He said that John said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. And so the crowds asked him, what therefore should we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax exemptors, all, tax collectors also came to be baptized by him. And they said, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him also, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, but be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether or not he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, 
but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather his wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had already been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the other evil things that Herod has done, added this to all their son, in that he locked John up in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Every year after Christmas, we spend time in, in one of the gospels um, between Christmas and um, and usually a little bit after Easter, usually between Christmas and Pentecost, um, to take a look at the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. And then when we move into Lent and Holy Week, we're we are obviously looking at the betrayal and the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus. And then, of course, on Easter, his glorious resurrection. Uh, we were in the Old Testament before Christmas because the Old Testament shows us that we need God himself to save us. And the Gospels are the revelation about the man that God became in order to do just that. And so last year at this time, we were in Mark, and this year we'll be in Luke. I wanna give you just a, a minute or two of background on Luke. Um, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you might've heard before um, the, the four gospels kind of pigeonholed or defined with a sentence or two. Um, maybe you've heard that Matthew is the gospel to the Jews. It's the one that's most concerned with um, Jesus fulfilling the law and Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Mark, they say, was probably written to Roman Christians. Um, and Mark is definitely the, the shortest and most action-oriented of the Gospels. It's like this happened, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. It's, it, it's like Mark is saying, if you have 35 minutes, I can tell you everything critical that you need to know about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and then we have the one that's different from the other three, which is John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are usually called the synoptic gospels because they all trace roughly the same events in the same chronology. And John is the outlier. John is more concerned with theology. John is the theologian's gospel. Um, he takes his time explaining all the things that happened and talking about the theological implications of the fact that God became a man. And, and so John reads almost like a sermon. So that's uh, Matthew, Mark, and John. And then there's the, the gospel that we're gonna be in for the next few months, the gospel according to Luke. Luke, you may have heard in that same kind of construction, is the gospel that is written for Greeks. Uh, it's the only gospel that we know of that was written by a non-Jew, and it very much has a Greek or a Gentile mindset. It interacts with the Greek worldview, and it specifically talks about the broader audience who, that Jesus came to save. Uh, for instance, Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham, because that would have been very important to his Jewish audience, that Jesus truly was the promised Jewish Messiah, uh, the one promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. But Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Luke declares that Jesus not only came to save the Jews, but all of mankind. 
And this is woven throughout the gospel as Jesus meets new Gentiles, Greeks and Syrophoenicians and others. And, and Luke is the one that spends the most time with what we would traditionally or what we would today call marginalized people groups, women, foreigners, slaves, uh, the elderly and the very young. And, and specifically, I want to highlight here women. The role of women and Jesus' interaction with women is center stage in a way uh, that, that stands out from all the other Gospels. And we'll actually talk about why that probably is in the upcoming weeks. But today, we're just going to jump right in in Luke chapter 3. Now, Luke chapter 1 and 2 are important. They, they set up the book and they, they talk about the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. And they're great. It's, Luke is the only Gospel. Um, before the birth of in in the time before the birth of Jesus that that records Mary's prayer song that we call the Magnificat. Luke is the only one of the gospels that records uh Simeon and Anna in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought little like one month old 40 day old Jesus into the temple for his presentation and that's really important stuff but we are jumping right into the middle uh we're jumping right into Luke chapter 3 because this Sunday is the Sunday in the church calendar when we celebrate the baptism of the Lord. It happens, it's the first Sunday after the Feast of the Epiphany. So John the Baptist has already be begun his ministry and he is, he's proclaiming what we're told is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was the one that Isaiah talked about, the, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. Um, the, the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places shall be made leveled and everyone will see the salvation of God. This was John's role. This was his job. He was the, the herald. He was the one going ahead of the king to announce that the king is coming. And, and John as a preacher was not exactly um, seeker sensitive. Like his role is to announce the coming of the kingdom and to gather people around him while he proclaimed this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But when the people came, he, he just screamed at them. He, he said, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Um, I am not 100% sure that John would have been all that much fun at a, at a party at a pastor's convention. But the thing is, he was he was preaching good news to them. And that seems counterintuitive as you read through what he's saying. Because firstly, he was preaching the law. And so while all these people were standing around claiming that their status as, as children of God was secure because they were all descendants of Abraham, John said, what are you talking about? Like, you think that just your genealogy is gonna save you? you? You aren't acting like God's children. So what makes you think you are God's children? He says in verse eight, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Turns out that living the way that God calls his people to live is a lot harder than just leaning on your birthright or your perceived inheritance or the, the group that you hang out with. And so when these Jews gathered around John might have been tempted, the, the Jews gathered around John might have been tempted to lean on their family history, to, to lean on what others had done rather than what they themselves had done. John reminds them, and, and he reminds us too, of what it means to live as part of God's covenant family. And he, he also reminds them of just how different God is from us. God can actually 
take these stones and raise up children for Abraham. He, he reminds us just how much power the creator has over his creation. God can make followers of himself out of stones. God is going to craft whatever kind of covenant family he desires. And so the question as you read this is, what, well then what does it mean to be a child of Abraham? What does it mean to be part of God's covenant family? It can't just be biology. It can't just be genealogy. John was reminding people of what living as a set apart person means. He was, he was preaching a very radical way of living. What it seems very strange back then seems very strange today. Whoever has two tunics, whoever has two shirts, give it, give one of them to the person who has no shirts. Whoever has a whole lot of food should give some of their food to the people who have no food. It is by no means complicated, but it is not easy. And then in the midst of a discussion of just how powerful this creator is, of how, of how he can raise up stones to be his followers if he wants to, in the midst of this, Jesus comes into the story. The creator and sustainer of the universe is now also about a 30-year-old man. And he just kind of gets put into the scene at the very end. And so all these people gathered around John and hearing him speak so plainly, but so radically about the kingdom of God, they were all wondering if he was the promised Messiah. I mean, it would make sense. He's the one that's talking about the Old Testament. He's the one that's talking about the kingdom. Like if you start connecting the dots about what the Old Testament says the Messiah was, it makes sense they thought it might be him, but he says, no, 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 no. He says there's one coming after him whose sandal straps John is not even worthy of untying. And then something interesting happens. Because up to now, John kind of sounds like some like crazy revivalist preacher, like on the street corner, you know, saying, repent and, and avoid the, the fires of hell. He's talking about damnation and calling people a brood of vipers. But then in verse 18, it says, <clears throat> so with many other or many similar exhortations, he preached good news to the people, meaning the way that sentence is structured, it means that everything he said before was good news too. And so how is, how is this good news? How is the command to give of, of what we have good news? How is, how is the wrath to come good news? Well, it depends on what your definition of good news is, I guess. Um, there's a part of me that, that you know, the, the, the lazy part of me that's always there that would think that good news would be up, someone coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, everything you're doing is just great. All the choices that you're making, everything that you've done, maybe could have done a couple things better, but none of it really matters anyway. So, you know, whatever, everything's fine. You're, you're doing just grand. But John was, John was preaching a gospel. John, we, we, we have, um, we've come to see that, I think, as more limiting than it really is. Uh, a gospel or a euangelion is a kingly announcement. It, this is something that would have been brought by heralds like John the Baptist, and they would have been pronouncements like, there's been a victory in the battle, or the war is over, or the old king is dead, long live the king. So this good news that John was bringing was the gospel, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. That's the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then the very last second, after this gospel of the kingdom of God is at hand, after that's been preached, Jesus makes his first appearance. And it makes me wonder if at the time John saw the irony of this, 
that the that the physical embodiment of the kingdom of God was literally at hand, was in his presence. And so John had been baptizing many others for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And then John baptized Jesus too, which is a little bit confusing. John doesn't, I'm sorry, Luke doesn't record this, but in other gospels, we hear Jesus saying, I'm sorry, we hear John saying, wait, I can't baptize you, Jesus. How can I baptize the Messiah? You need to baptize me. But, but Jesus is the one who insists on it. He insists on it because he says, no, this has to happen in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then we get this beautiful picture of Jesus's, both his divine identity and his earthly mission. And, and we get a really clear image of the Trinity in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. If you remember back in, in October, when we were going through Genesis, we got to the part about Noah and the flood. And after the rain stops and the waters begin to subside, Noah sends out the dove to see kind of how, how close are we to this new creation that God promised? How close are we to the promises of God being fulfilled? Can we get out of this boat yet? And so the first time the dove goes out, he comes right back, which means there's no land yet. Seven days go by. The dove goes out, but he comes back with an olive leaf. So this means that the water had gone down at least to the point where at the top of the highest mountain, there was enough dry land for olive trees to start poking through. So we see this promise starting to be fulfilled. No one knew that God was going to provide for them and that their time in the ark had almost come to an end, but they couldn't leave yet. And so Noah in faithfulness sends out this dove one more time to look for the dry land, to look for the new creation that God had promised to his covenant people. And this time the dove goes out and it never comes back. The next time in the Bible that a dove is mentioned in flight is in the beginning of the gospels. In Luke three, we see a dove that is already in flight, coming down out of heaven, finding this new creation that God promised to bring to his people. And then the dove finally coming to rest. When will the new creation come? When will the restoration of God's kingdom finally be accomplished? It will be in the person and work of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. It's an early picture already in Luke 3 that Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to remake the world. That God himself in the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the resting place where the dove can finally find some place to lay her head. And this happens after Jesus is baptized. And so you might ask yourself, well, why did Jesus need to be baptized? If, if John is baptizing for repentance and the forgiveness of sins, I thought Jesus was sinless. Why is he doing this? Because Jesus is demonstrating two things here that I think are very important. One is that he is in perfect submission to the will of the Father. We hear this again and again in the Gospels. Jesus does nothing on his own. He only does what the Father tells him. And so this baptism was a sign of a commitment to walk in, in newness of life. It's to, to walk in the kind of radical kingdom of God life that John the Baptist was explaining to people, right? Radical generosity, upright behavior, even when no one's looking, even when it costs you. That's what Jesus was demonstrating his commitment to by being baptized into this new life. 
because the word repentance doesn't just mean running away from your bad behavior. I mean, it does mean that, but it doesn't just mean that. It doesn't just mean saying you're sorry. It literally means to turn away or to turn in a different direction, which is a, a whole body thing. And it's a whole life thing. And so really repentance means to become a disciple, not just to turn away from something, but to turn towards something, to, to positively choose something. And so Jesus's baptism wasn't so much a, a fleeing from sin as it was a public commitment to this same kind of dedication to fully follow God's will that John was asking of everybody else. It's just that Jesus was the only person there uh, or since or before that who would ever have been able to follow the path of discipleship fully and perfectly because Jesus was God, the son, he is perfect and complete. So basically the one who wrote the law is the only one who could perfectly keep the law. And, and this actually brings me to the second reason why Jesus was baptized because he was a human being. And so in addition to being fully God, he was fully man. Um, you can see some, depictions, either drawings or, or movies uh, of Jesus, where he seems to kind of float a couple inches off the ground, where he seems to be this kind of ethereal spirit that isn't quite as present with the rest of the, the disciples, that he isn't quite as present with the women and the poor and the children. Um, but that's not true. I mean, that's just simply not true. Jesus was fully man. And so the things that God was asking of other men, like being baptized into this new kingdom family that was just starting, Jesus went through those things too, because he was fully man. And it's kind of tough to, to reconcile those two things in your head. But if you think about it, there's a lot of things that Jesus did that he didn't have to do, but he did them because he was a person. I mean, Jesus spends tons of time in prayer in Luke. We're going to see that over and over again. It's one of the big themes of Luke. Why does he need to pray? Like, why does he need to actually get on his knees and say words out loud? Like, doesn't he have perfect communion within the Trinity at all times? So why pray? For that matter, why go to the temple? Why go to the synagogue on the Sabbath? Why, why do any of the things that God asks people to do? And it's the reason is because Jesus was a person, which means that he can identify with every single thing that you have ever gone through. Jesus knows what it was like to be hungry. Jesus knows what it was like to be cold. He knows what it was like to feel lonely, misunderstood, rejected. Jesus knows what it was like to feel elated. Jesus knows what it was like to feel full, to feel loved and connected and adored and part of something larger than yourself. He knows these things because he was fully a man. He knows what the life that he told John to call us to live will cost us. He knows that because it cost him too. And so as we'll see over the next few months, it cost him dearly. He was rejected in his hometown. He was rejected by his followers. He was completely misunderstood by the religious leaders of the day. He was shunned by the elites. He was mocked by people who didn't understand why he wanted to spend all this much time with hookers and thieves and the poor and the helpless, just the dregs of society. Why do you want to hang out with them? And so in the end, at the very end, it cost him everything. 
It cost him his life. So he knows what it means to walk this path, and yet he is confident in calling us to walk it anyway, because this is the other thing. He knows that walking this path together is a time of joy and celebration. And that's really one of the main themes of Luke. It's I've, I've kind of it's kind of corny, but I'm, I'm terming it a movable feast. There's, there's two themes in Luke that are unmistakable over and over and over again. M movement, walking, going somewhere. And there are more instances of eating and drinking in Luke than in any other gospel. Jesus is constantly eating and drinking something and going somewhere. He's like Brad Pitt in half of his movies. He's just constantly eating and moving and eating and moving. In fact, one of the main complaints against Jesus was that he was a glutton, that he spent too much time eating good food and drinking wine. So he was constantly in motion and constantly eating. And that's a glimpse. It's a picture of what life lived in community, a life, a life of repentance where we not just turn away from bad things, but actively toward, turn towards Christ to follow him, to become his apprentice. Um, it's that movable feast. And so as we follow Jesus, the one who not only created us, but became one of us, as we follow him, we get to participate in this movable feast. And we find people who have no tunic, and we offer them one of ours. And we find people who have no food, and we offer them some of ours. And then we invite them to join us in this movable feast as we follow the king. Let me pray. God, thank you for this glimpse into the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Um, in as we consider all that this means of what of how John called people to live, of what of what Jesus's baptism means, and of what following him will not only cost us, but also what the what the great benefits and rewards are, Lord. I pray that you would remind us of this as we as we go through our week, that as we find find ways to praise you for what you have done that you would remind them of us that as we as we come into situations where where there is someone who has no tunic where there is someone who has no food that we can joyfully give of what we've been given because we know that we are participating in this feast that never ends and we get to invite others to be a part of it in jesus name amen <laughs>